Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. Climate tech is a $90 trillion opportunity, and synthetic biology is projected to be a $30 trillion opportunity. Both sectors are expected to grow by 100x in the next decade. And we know that more than 60% of the dirty inputs to the global economy can be replaced by inputs made by biology, which are more efficient, cleaner, and cost-effective. So we invest in the intersection of these two markets, both of which are at inflection points. When it comes to a rapidly decarbonizing world, there's many things we take for granted that we shouldn't. For example, it's easy to assume that coffee and chocolate should always come from beans that grow on trees. Maybe that's the case, or maybe we'll rely on new tech that's enabling us to create synthetic alternatives that are actually better for the planet. Welcome to the world of synthetic biology. I've been fascinated by the possibility of dramatically reducing emissions across many different sectors through biology. So I sat down with Michael Luciani and Jenny Khan, who are investing in synthetic bio as they build a new fund called Exponential Impact. I learned a ton in this conversation and hope you do too. Here we go. Michael and Jenny, welcome to Invested in Climate. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, so glad to have you both here. Where do I have you both? Michael, I think you're in D.C. Are you, are you both in the D.C. area? I am in Washington, D.C. in the Adams Morgan area. Jenny is not. I'm in sunny San Diego, California. Oh, fantastic. Great. Uh, another founding team that is doing this virtually. Recently talked to another team that is also spread out. And how's virtual partnership working for you? I think it's great. It's certainly a little bit unconventional, but I know I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think that I'm lucky to get to work with with Jenny, regardless of the fact that she doesn't live anywhere <laughs> near me. And so I'm pretty happy about it. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's dive in. Let's start with your backgrounds. You are partners in developing a new climate tech venture fund called Exponential Impact. And your paths here are a bit surprising in some ways. Jenny, you are a chemist with a PhD from Cambridge, you have seven patents, and you were the lead engineer in the lab of a recent Nobel laureate in chemistry. And Michael, you're a former civic tech entrepreneur. You founded and led a company called The Tuesday Company, which was acquired. I'd love to hear how each of you got involved with climate investing. Let's start with Jenny. 
Yeah, well, I started my career as a scientist, did my PhD in chemistry at Cambridge, learned a ton about chemical synthesis and also its limitation. At that time, I was captivated by the idea of how we could potentially teach and engineer biology to solve human problems like making medicines and solving climate change. And that was what led me to Caltech, working with Frances Arnold, who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. She was the first American woman to do that, and we were all extremely proud and honored to share that joy with her. At Caltech, I had this front row seat to see the potential of how biology can come up with ideas that are beyond our imagination as human beings, how biology has this incredible ability to self-replicate and self-optimize, to overcome adversity. And for a long time, I thought I would either become a professor in synthetic biology or start a company that utilizes biology as a technology to, to solve climate change. And of course, life doesn't always go the way we planned. And I ended up starting a tech company instead to help medical and care facilities hire healthcare professionals. That was something I thought the world needed during the pandemic. I did that for two years, learned a ton about how to build a company and really understand the idea of, you know, it's really possible to generate profitability and impact and use both as flywheels to change the world while generating generational wealth for founders, as well as what it really means to relentlessly iterate ideas to find product market fit and to figure out a solution that customers are willing to, to pay for. Really enjoyed building my company, but ultimately I think my hearts were with the sciences. So after spending a brief period of time in impact asset management, I got to know Michael. He, he is one of the most brilliant people I have the pleasure to work with. And I'm really excited about um, joining him in building exponential impact and support great scientists and engineers solving climate change. Thanks, Jenny. Michael, what about you? My journey started out in politics. I had worked in DC and actually focused on policy and then got into the world of campaigns. From my perspective, I, I worked on actually Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. And I, you know, it was my intention to like work for her administration if she had won. When she didn't, you know, I connected with a friend of mine who had been a part of a couple of different Y Combinator startups, and he and I brainstormed taking some of my experiences working on the campaign and building technology that we thought would help campaigns to succeed. And I had no idea what a startup was, really, or anything about the world of entrepreneurship. So you know, that was my entrance into this world I've really come to love. We built relational organizing technology. So campaigns, you know, give volunteers clipboards and people go knock on doors or make phone calls. We said, hey, you know, download our app. We can match up a volunteer's cell phone contacts to the voter file. And rather than a stranger knocking on your door, Jason, like our app could say, hey, Michael, you know, Jason, will you just text him and ask him about or tell him about whatever campaign or cause I was volunteering on behalf of. And to me, I, I think impact has always been my primary priority. And I loved entrepreneurship as a vehicle for impact. And what a great way to bring a new concept into the world and to you know hopefully improve outcomes uh, because of it. So after selling the company, 
I started to explore climate tech and have always had a fascination with kind of hard sciences, but am myself not a scientist. And so it was only after my experience with my company that I realized I could be of service to entrepreneurs who are coming out of academia, who are hard scientists, and who I could work with as a mentor and, and as an advisor and help them to grow their companies. So from there, I got connected with Sandeep Ahuja and Climate Capital and started you know, not only advising and mentoring, but also investing and leading syndicates into really fantastic companies run by extraordinary entrepreneurs that were working to solve climate change. And over the course of time, you know, and my own research, I developed a thesis that synthetic biology and biotech seemed to be, and still does to me, be the area of scientific innovation, most likely to yield the types of results at scale that we need for bringing the entirety of our society and economic system into a carbon neutral and sustainable footing. I grew increasingly interested in the entrepreneurs working in that space and developed a thesis around uh, investing in and supporting those people. And, and that's kind of how my partnership with Jenny and, and the thesis of our fund came about. Well, we will definitely dive into synthetic bio with lots of questions and curiosity around the thesis. But let's first zoom back out to the different investment vehicles that you mentioned. I suspect a lot of people don't realize that there's actually many ways to become a venture investor. It's not just about writing a big check to a big firm, or at least it doesn't have to be. There are smaller ways to get started and to learn. Uh, so, Michael, maybe first start telling us about the syndicates that you've led and, and how that process works. So we lead syndicates on AngelList. We have a syndicate called Climate Capital and another one called C3. At this point, they're relatively overlapping. Uh, my partner, Sandeep, started Climate Capital, and then together we started C3 to create a more inclusive vehicle for new managers like myself uh, and Jenny to be able to run deals. And we've built up a large number of LPs. The thing that AngelList has done and syndicate investing has done is it makes investing in startups accessible, as you said. So minimum investments in most uh, SPVs on AngelList are $1,000. So we might write up a memo and be co-investing with lower carbon or 50 years or, or some of the kind of premier climate tech investors and offer that to our LPs. And anyone who is an LP can make even a very small investment and be part of you know, the seed round of a fast-growing climate tech startup. And you know, I think from the perspective of democratization and accessibility, it's really an exciting innovation. You do have to be accredited. At very least, the standard for being accredited is a lower barrier than the standard for being an LP in Andreessen Horowitz. So it, I think that has opened up the door for a lot of people to kind of experiment and learn with either investing or running syndicates. Great. And just to define a couple of the terms that you used, a SPV is a special purpose vehicle. And a syndicate is essentially a, a group of investors that pool their funds uh, and through platforms like AngelList, people are able to become syndicate leads and recruit other investors to join at lower entry amounts. Is, is that more or less it or anything that you'd want to add to it? So I think for 
a listener who's curious about it, one thing that you should know is you, know, you can go to joinc3.co or AngelList and you can join these syndicates. And there's no mandate that you have to invest if you join, right? All that happens is you start to see, you know, here are the deals that Michael and Jenny and Sandeep and whomever else are running. And then you can, you can choose on a deal by deal basis, whether you want to participate and at what level. It's also different from being an LP in a fund because you have that kind of deal by deal autonomy, which some people like and, and is, a, is important to them. And if I'm not mistaken, building on your momentum with the syndicates, you started offering a rolling fund. Can you tell us what is a rolling fund? How does it work? And what kinds of investors might rolling funds be a good fit for? Yeah. So rolling funds are a new kind of vehicle that AngelList has created. And so they're literally a different fund every single quarter. And they are also meant to accommodate small dollar investors. So you could be a an LP in the exponential impact rolling fund for, I think the minimum is 5k per quarter. And that allows Jenny and I to invest in a, from a dedicated pool of capital in a portfolio of companies each quarter. Uh, we actually, you know, did, I think 12 investments last quarter. I think we're on pace to do 15 or 16 this quarter. So we're relatively prolific. Our check size isn't large enough where we're leading, we're, we're following on with investors who are leading that we know well and trust and investing in companies that align with our thesis. And, you know, the way that LPs should think about it is, is it's like a subscription where usually folks are subscribing for four quarters or eight quarters or whatever it might be. And from our perspective, you know, it allows us to build a track record as fund managers. It also allows an LP to say, hey, I don't want to be receiving all of these emails from you guys. Like, I think you're smart. I like your thesis. You guys pick the best ones and build a portfolio, which is a, a lower degree of risk than an LP trying to choose individual companies. And then finally, we actually get to invest in better companies or different companies than we would through a syndicate because having a dedicated pool of capital means that we can get into rounds that are moving really fast um, and that we might not be able to have the time to put together a syndicate, which can often take a couple of weeks because you've got to kind of wrangle a bunch of people. Great. And just for the record, Michael, I actually really do enjoy your emails. So please keep sending them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> full disclosure, I backed a uh, syndicate uh, that Michael's a part of, uh, the C3 and also Climate Capital that he's mentioned. The emails, honestly, are one of my favorite parts because you get information in your inbox about interesting new companies and the value proposition for uh, considering an investment. And so I think especially for folks that are looking to learn about climate tech opportunities or any sort of investment category, the syndicates really do offer you a deal-by-deal -deal overview of, of the space. And so it can be a great part of the process. Let's now turn to the next level of your investment uh, portfolio or vehicles. You're now developing the Exponential Impact Venture Fund. If I'm not mistaken, it's aiming to be a $30 million fund focusing on seed and pre-seed companies. Jenny, I've been picking on Michael with so many questions, so I wonder if I could turn to you to explain the investment thesis behind Exponential. What's it trying to do and really why does it have a unique opportunity right now? The goal for Exponential Impact is to be one of the first investors to invest in deep tech companies solving climate change. Through our experience running these syndicates, we learned that, especially at the early stage, a lot of investors in deep tech companies, they are not technical. And a lot of these 
technical companies, they really don't have the commercial tractions to get investors excited enough to help them get the first check so that the company can continue to grow and move on to getting investments from more established institutional investors. Michael and I, we have this unique capability of being both technical and business savvy because we were both founders ourselves. And we have deep understanding of the deep tech space that we invest in, especially in biotech and synthetic biology. So we see this white space for us to come in to help scientists and engineers build up their company with the technology that is often spent out of university or research institutions with uh, very little Attractions when it comes to you know, figuring out what's the best go-to-market strategy, how to bring down the unit economics of the technology, how do you think about scaling the company, and these are all things that we can help companies with. In my mind's eye, a helpful way to think about our thesis is climate tech being plausibly an $80 trillion market opportunity, right, where the majority of inputs into the world economy are dirty today. And and we hope the world economy and we expect the world economy will continue to grow. And yet at the same time, we expect the percentage of inputs that are fueled by fossil fuels and other greenhouse gas emitting processes to shrink, hopefully to zero. You know, that is a obviously a giant market opportunity that, that lots of climate tech investors are now pursuing uh, theses around. And then we see the biotech economy, which is expected to grow Recently, McKinsey's put out a report detailing, you know, an expected potential $30 trillion market share over the next 20 years that biotech could grow into. And when we looked at these two things, there's a huge overlap, right? There's a whole bunch of problems in climate that biotech can solve. And, and I think, you know, we can give some examples and would be excited to do so. But when we looked at the venture capital investors that are investing in biotech, by and large, they're investing in pharmaceuticals, and they have mandates from LPs to invest in drug discovery. And when a company comes to them and says, hey, I can make carbon negative industrial chemicals with biotech, they say, that's super cool, but um, that's not a drug, so it's outside of scope for us. And when a company goes to a climate tech investor and says the same, the climate tech investor might say, that's great. Come back to us when you have a lead investor or when you have a little bit more traction because they don't have someone like Jenny on their team that can evaluate the merits of their technical approach and get comfortable. And so we saw these companies that are tackling giant markets with differentiated technologies and great teams that were struggling to find investors. And we couldn't be that lead investor at a pre-seed with the current structure we have, right? Syndicates are great if you're follow-on investing. They're not really structured to have conviction and lead rounds. And so that led us to think, great, you know, we, sh- we should fill that gap. We should raise a fund to support those entrepreneurs in the early stages of developing these companies. And, and that's what we are you know, currently working on. And you know, we'll eventually move all of our focus into the fund and and no longer run you know syndicates or, or the rolling fund so it's been kind of an evolution for us and we're currently kind of in progress on stage three that's the logic that led us there michael jenny let's go a bit deeper the synthetic biospace is somewhat new and and somewhat hot 
there's a new opportunity within this category enabled by some new technology. So what is synthetic bio and what is the opportunity it's creating for addressing climate change? Synthetic biology is really the design and engineering of biological entities, ranging from DNA and proteins to organisms like bacteria, plants, and animals. With, uh, without us knowing, human beings have actually been modifying biology for a long time. Think about the dogs that we breed. If we don't intentionally pick the ones that we want, those breeds of dogs, they won't be able to survive in, in a natural environment. Uh, synthetic biology enable us to engineer and design biology in a more intentional way at the level of, of DNA. And this has really become possible because now we understand the structure of DNA and we have the ability to write and read DNA through DNA synthesis and sequencing. And the consequence and the impact of that is massive. One of the most impactful application of synthetic biology is how it can completely change how we make things for human society. Instead of using fossil fuels as feedstocks and processes that are dirty and polluting, now we can take feedstocks that are renewable through processes that are not energy intensive, that are kind to the environment, that are sometimes can be cheaper than existing chemical processes to generate products that we need as well as new ones that we um, can imagine that we can make with the current processes. Thank you for that explanation, Jenny. Michael, let's make this a bit more tangible for listeners. Tell us a bit about a couple of the companies that you've invested in. Absolutely. So we like to think about global greenhouse gas emissions by economic sector and you know, try to invest in companies that have the ability to mitigate damage or greenhouse gas emitted in a really large way. So I'm talking about like gigaton scale emission reduction or mitigation. And then that generally corresponds well with the size of the market that the company is tackling. So you know, one example that I, that I used already is a real one where we've invested in a company that is genetically engineering microbes. They use CO2 and methane as a feedstock, which is amazing. And rather than emitting those harmful greenhouse gases, they're actually consuming them or their microbes are. And they can tailor these microbes to essentially secrete the compounds that together make industrial chemicals that you would need for large-scale manufacturing processes. And the traditional creation of those chemicals is relatively dirty. Um, you're mixing you know, extractive mining techniques with petrochemicals and shipping them across the world, whereas these facilities that the company creates can be created uh, situated on site for industrial processes. And the chemical industry more broadly is you know, responsible for a meaningful percentage of industrial greenhouse gas emissions and is you know, trillions of dollars. And so we've made more than one investment in companies either working directly on the creation of compounds for industrial chemicals or creating systems that facilitate other companies that are working on these same problems. Another giant sector, and this is probably the one that people most think of when they hear synthetic biology, is agriculture, right? And, and food production. This is already biological systems. So I think there's an argument to be made that 
all of that is already biotech, right? Even a non-GMO plant has been engineered by hundreds or thousands of years of human agriculture selecting for the traits that we want. So on the one hand, you've got people who are engineering microbes to be planted with the soil of new crops that help them grow in extreme and more hardy conditions that can be caused by the changing climate. There's also people that are directly genetically engineering plants to help them also be more robust and to produce more. And then there are you know weirder things, right? There's lab-grown meats, um, there's plant cellular agriculture, which are folks creating plant-based products like chocolate or coffee in a lab rather than in the fields. And both chocolate and coffee are examples that of commodities that are very valuable and have large markets, but also are very dirty in their production and generally result in rainforest cut down and shipping costs across the world, uh, as well as being susceptible to growing areas changing quickly. I think the productive growing area for coffee is moving north by a third of a mile each year um, because of the changing climate and how sensitive that crop is. So you know, being able to create carbon neutral or carbon negative ways to, to produce these products ensures that we will continue to have them and that we can continue to have them in a way that is friendly to the earth rather than destructive. You know, I think that folks also think a lot about cell-based meat, um, and we have definitely made some investments in infrastructure around that. And truly, you know, the list kind of goes on in terms of bio industry or bioproduction. There are folks making materials um, with fermentation, and there are people working on all sorts of interesting technologies that you know could change the way that our clothes are created as well as kind of the food we eat and, and the non-biological goods that we produce are created any other examples jenny that come to mind outside of those categories that you think are fun we have a long view as to how biology can change climate change right so applications such as dna storage for example will have a longer timeline as to how biology can truly impact space, but we are also very bullish about this. You may not know that globally, it would take almost 8% of the electricity for the world produced to power all the data centers that are currently around the world. But if we were to store all the data in the world in DNA, it would only take a shoebox of DNA. But for me, that's mind-blowing. And so many companies are focusing on developing technology that read and write information into DNA, but we really don't have good ways to extract information from DNA right now. So think about the internet with so much information. If Google doesn't exist, the internet isn't of great use for us. So we recently invested in a company called Cash DNA, and they're building the first operating system, the first Google for DNA's data storage. That's a moonshot investment for us, but we are very excited about the technology that is spun out of MIT, the, the founding team is incredible. So I think that's another fun investment that we made recently that really represents what we believe in this space. Okay, that is really cool. Honestly, you just blew my mind there. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about things that you can taste and feel and touch. And now you're talking about reducing the computing load of the entire internet to a shoebox in size by using DNA as a storage mechanism. That is fascinating. 
and I'm thrilled to know about it and to learn more. And I'm also still curious about the question of taste and quality as we're moving towards replacing naturally growing food or animal-based meat with lab-grown variations. I recently got to taste lab-grown honey, and I was really impressed. And I love honey, and this honey was just as good. So a question for either of you, especially for consumer products that we're used to, will the synthetically made products compare when it comes to the taste and the consumer experience? Ultimately, with the consumer product, taste is number one. Oftentimes, consumers don't really care how food is made. As long as it tastes good, they would go back and buy the product again if they like it. And the incredible power of biology is that scientists and engineers, they can deconstruct how a product like honey is made by understanding the molecular composition of these food products. They can then reconstitute the exact same product, the real thing, using a process that is more sustainable. And you wouldn't even tell whether it's real honey made from bees or honey made by bacteria. So that was definitely my experience. I couldn't taste the difference. But I'm assuming it's more expensive to produce synthetically made honey or synthetically made coffee, chocolate, meat, etc. And that's one of the critiques of the synthetic biospace, that there's a cost curve and it might take a long time to get to cost parity. And also that the testing process for synthetic bio is very time intensive. So Jenny, as an investor that's excited about this space, what are your feelings about these critiques? I think founders are getting smarter about what they should produce first, targeting products that have really high margins so that you have this cushion to have a process that might be slightly more expensive as you roll out the technology and scale. But ultimately, the um, the price curve can be even more attractive than existing processes, especially in these time and days when supply chains are unstable. A product that might be cheap right now, we don't really know how much it would cost depending on how stable the supply chain is in the coming months or even years. With the ability to use biology to produce these products, companies have the advantage of decentralizing their manufacturing to instead of building big factories to make products in high volume, you can make products close to where customers are in using processes that are sometimes not so similar to how we ferment cheese or beer, which have already proven to be you know, cost-effective enough to roll out to the massive market. So I think with the right strategy, pricing and scalability is not the issue. The tricky part is to figure out the steps to get there. Jenny, another critique of synthetic bio is actually on the ethical side. Some see synthetic bio as tampering with nature and think that there could be unexpected consequences. What are your thoughts of this critique? I think with any breakthrough technology, there is always the potential of of due use, right? Think about whether it's artificial intelligence or, or fusion or synthetic biology. Us as a human society, we've been tingling with biology for a long time, whether we breed animals, raise horses, or the crops that we grow. But now with the tools and technologies of synthetic biology, we can actually manipulate biology in a more intentional and precise way. Instead of breeding animals without understanding how DNA are shuffled, now we can target a specific gene to deliver outcome that we understand 
what the consequence might be. So I think in many ways, synthetic biology is actually offering a safer way for us to work with biology to create solutions um, and crowdsource innovations from diverse organisms in a way that can make our planet a better a better place to be for whether it's for um, human beings or, or the other animals and organisms that are coexisting with us. Thanks, Jenny. I didn't mean to pick on you with those two critiques, but they are important considerations. And as I said before, despite any critiques some might have, this space is pretty hot. In fact, I see that you've been investing alongside some of the biggest investors in climate. Firms like SOSV, Lower Carbon Capital, Lux Capital, Kosla. How do you get in on those deals as a relatively small and newer firm? Michael, I'll turn that one to you. I think that we have you know, two advantages. One is we actually do have an extremely robust and powerful network with the portfolio companies that we've invested in from the syndicate, the personal networks of Jenny and I and, and others on our team, and you know the networks of the members of our syndicates who can always recommend deals to us and, and often do so. So that's one piece of it. I think the second piece of it is that we come to the table as former founders, and we come to the table as folks who have not only you know business expertise, but also technical expertise, and as such can be very, very valuable sounding boards. We're also, with our syndicate, relatively low maintenance. Because syndicates are deal by deal, we don't necessarily have a check size minimum uh, that we you know, can't make an investment under $5 million or something, we can we can kind of fit in as the entrepreneur wants us to. And because we can add value after the fact, they, they're often happy to make that room. Michael, you were just talking about the flexibility that the syndicates offer you, but you're also raising the Exponential Impact Fund. And my understanding is that's aiming to be a $30 million venture fund. Who is your ideal investor for that? And what's the minimum investment? Um, great question. The fund itself is actually investing really with a focus on pre-seed, right? So often investing before some of the kind of big names that you listed and then co-investing with them in later rounds where we have pro rata. So it's, it's a little bit of a different strategy. And the ideal investor is either institutions that have an eye towards climate or otherwise, you know, are supportive of the thesis that we're pursuing. And, you know, the other kind of ideal investor are individuals and family offices. Again, I think that what I'm seeing is most of our LPs are folks that are excited to be investing in climate. However, you know, we think that there is a really strong business case, regardless of one's kind of ideological alignment around climate as a an issue to be solved or not. And so we'll happily take someone who's purely profit motivated and we, we feel actually very confident that we'll be able to deliver you know excellent returns at, for that person. That's uh, meaning that our field for LP recruitment is is wide open, which is great. And is there a minimum? So our minimum for individuals is $100,000 and our, our minimum for institutions is $500,000. Okay. And I think this brings us full circle to the other investment vehicles of syndicates and rolling funds. Is I guess many of our listeners can't pony up that sort of minimum. Michael, for investors that are just getting started with supporting climate tech startups, 
What are some principles you think they should keep in mind and where should they go to start finding investments? Yeah, I think that if investors are looking to support climate tech startups, there are two avenues. One is to get involved in the community of angel investors, whether it be on AngelList or you know, there, there are lots of different communities off of AngelList as well. There might be something local to your area or to your profession. But getting involved with a group and learning together, I think, is really important. I also do think that at least AngelList or any group, you know, getting the ability to read the memos that people write and understand the thinking about why whomever is leading the deal is excited is a really important intellectual exercise. And then I think that one has to educate oneself about the totality of kind of climate tech innovation and greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, for example, you know, I came into this and I had no idea the amount of greenhouse gases produced by animal husbandry and agriculture. I had no idea that like buildings were a problem. I hadn't put two and two together that my gas stove was like, indicative of this really intractable, difficult thing that we need to solve as a society, which is like heating with propane. There's a whole bunch of facets of this that reading kind of like an overview on climate, the drawdown project is a really good overview, can help someone to become knowledgeable and, and more confident about which solutions they are excited about and where they their capital and or expertise can best be um, suited. Thank you so much. So, Michael, Jenny, I always end the podcast with this question. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts, especially given your, your different backgrounds. This podcast, Invested in Climate, aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. We've talked a lot about investments. Thinking about those other categories of action, of work, learning, lifestyle, and activism, what else do you think listeners should consider doing that can make a real impact on climate. Jenny, why don't we start with you? I believe in making changes and impacts from, from where we are. So if climate is something that you're passionate about, talk to your friends and families about, about this. Tell them why you're excited about um, either making investments in companies that are making climate change or innovations that are out there that they may not have heard about. I think together we can... It takes a community to make impactful changes that can last for generations. And the, the best place to start is from where we are and the people around us. It sounds simple, but that's actually a really powerful solution. And it's one that Sean Kosofsky, our first guest in episode one from the Climate Advocacy Lab, talked about even from a political standpoint just going out and talking about climate actually makes a big difference because it raises it in everyone's awareness and helps everyone feel more empowered to get involved. Michael, turning to you to close us out. You're certainly a strong believer in that the power of one's community, having built a company around relational organizing technology in politics, I know that having those conversations can't be understated in terms of importance. I think the biggest change for me that's been most impactful in my life and that could be helpful to others has been an attitude change. You know, I had assumed before getting into this world that because, you know, I wasn't a scientist or the leader of a nation state or like large corporation that I as an individual didn't have 
the agency or power to be effective in making change. And I felt pessimistic about the choices that those people who I felt had agency were making. And, you know, when I realized that there are immensely positive and hopeful solutions being implemented on every scale, and that I could be a part of helping those solutions to flourish, it helped me to feel more energized to do little things as well, you know, to be more diligent about recycling, to actually make time to follow up with someone who might say something fatalistic about climate or politics and encourage them to actually, you know, vote or take action because I now have a better appreciation about how the smaller actions can play into the larger ones and how, you know, we each can have more agency, I think, than we believe if we just come at it with an attitude that change is possible and positive outcomes are possible because they really are. People talk about an inevitability of climate destruction, and and I don't think that that's productive or inevitable. I, I think that we really can live in a future that's better than the present. Once we realize that, you know, it's just a matter of of working towards making it real. Well, I believe that powerful statement is the perfect way to end. Michael, Jenny, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.